Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and recognise the ongoing contribution they make to the life of this city and region. Today, a podcast with a difference. Our guests, two former secretaries from the Australian Public Service, Kerry Hartland and Glynis Beecham. This podcast was recorded as a webinar for both proximity and content group, but the content was so good, we decided to turn it into a Work With Purpose episode. And the topic was, how do you build and sustain a high-performing public sector organisation post-COVID? It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Well, the pandemic has forced a new way of working for individuals, for teams, for organisations, and it's also forced change in the way we collaborate with clients and with stakeholders. It has challenged traditional structures and exposed glaring governance weaknesses at an international, national and local level. COVID-19 has also accelerated the uptake of digital technology and brought about a greater awareness of well-being and productivity, particularly in times of crisis. So what are the lessons that we've learned from the past couple of years and what do we need to do to ensure that we can create and sustain high-performing organisations? What are the building blocks for improving performance and productivity? And how do we manage and sustain not just our own performance, but the performance of the people who we lead? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined by two former Australian Federal Public Service Departmental Secretaries who are now part of the team at Proximity. Kerry Hartland is the Principal Advisor at Proximity and the Chair of their Advisory Board. And Glenis Beecham is the Principal Advisor of Proximity's Health and Industry Practices. Welcome to you both. Glynis, I might start with you. What are the biggest and most critical challenges that organisations must address as a result of the changes brought about by the pandemic? I think the pandemic's exposed some of the changes that need to be made, particularly in larger organisations, in the public service in particular. And one of the most paramount issues to address is that uncertainty, planning for uncertainty. I think organisations have been good at planning for change. I think it now is planning for uncertainty. And that requires a lot of communication, a lot of effort by leaders and uh, a journey to take organisations on. I think what we've seen during the pandemic is the rate of change, the speed of decision making. And coming from a a line agency uh, in, in the Commonwealth previously, one of the things that I've really seen is problem solving can't be done in silos. And I think working across agencies and organisations and across teams is going to require ongoing discipline by by leaders and organisations. And I think it's interesting, many agencies and public services have had the mantra in the past about one APS or 
or One Health and the like. And I, I don't think we can operate like that anymore. It, I, I don't think citizens, uh, clients, constituents, um, uh, industry really care about the organisational structures within government. They really want to know there's outcomes are being delivered and that we, as public servants, are working together to deliver those outcomes in consultation with those that are most affected. And I think that that is, is going to be uh, a big change. I think there's also, obviously, you mentioned uh, digital and the way we work, and so there's a change in how we work. And we'll get onto that a bit later, but more remote working, what does that mean for cultures of organisations? And particularly in leaders, in bringing cultures together based on values. And I think that we've heard the further you are from the centre, the harder it is to manage and lead organisations and that cannot be done through prescriptive processes. It is absolutely based on values and how do you entrench those values in, in people that you probably don't have daily contact with and are not likely to have contact with in the future. So there's using digital and engaging, and I sh should say engaging, not just consulting, but engaging staff is going to be a particular challenge uh, as well. And I think one of the other things, and you mentioned focusing on people and productivity, and what we've seen through the pandemic is what makes people tick? Um, what does, what do you have to do to bring out the best you possibly can in their performance? And, and I've been delighted to find out more about people that work in my teams um, than probably I ever did before. Um, you've seen people come in as robots and, and they're a, a unit there to produce particular outcomes rather than looking at the person as a whole and focusing on not just cost efficiencies and productivity but health and well, well-being to improve productivity for the future. So I think there are a couple of the challenges. I guess the other big organisational challenge is, I think, the move from efficiency cost drivers to resilience and sustainability for organisations and people. And I think that's what we've got to focus on. That's not a short list. <laughs> Actually, one of, the other thing, one of the other things, though, that the pandemic showed, and particularly when the pandemic started in the health portfolio, is how soon that every portfolio was involved Every industry stakeholder was involved, every community was involved, but just the connectedness of all of our work. And so that's why it's probably not a short list, but that's probably the underlying theme coming out of the pandemic for all of us. And it has exposed, hasn't it, some of those um, capabilities that we've sort of lost, I think, over time in the public sector yeah. um, and through... You know, it, it is just an overtime thing where there's been sort of deep specialisation in areas, and I think so. And you know, I know that you know, Glennis, you were working really specifically ar around some of the um, value chain and you know yeah. issues, and um, and we found that you know the public service had to go out to to consultants and um, to be able to sort of and, and to industry yeah. and we're finding that there was much more depth of knowledge in things that normally the public sector would have would have known more about. Yeah. So I think that's exposed yeah. some of those issues, which then is an opportunity for the future, right? It is. And a willingness of industry players to work together to solve problems. Yeah. I think in the, when I was there 
post-retirement looking at the supply of PPE and finding out that most gowns and masks were from Wuhan is the absolute willingness of local companies and local organisations to work together to produce masks um, and gowns and the like. And I think that was um, a terrific thing to happen, that you can make things happen. But when there's not a crisis, how do you make it happen? How do you sustain it? Yes. How do you do that? How do you sustain that? I think yeah. it's, it's around behaviours and expectations and I think that's why you need to reset in a sense, organisations, whilst organisations, and I think, you, David, you spoke about the foundations, and I've got a very simple framing of those foundations around people, processes, systems, resources, governance and values. And if you get those lined up and those right, um, then I think you're, you're in a good place to manage whatever's thrown at you. I think there'll be different emphasis around collaboration, so I think the collaboration work and engaging rather than consulting is going to be a big change for organisations. Less hierarchy, um, more focused on uh, project work um, and drawing in skills rather than people in particular roles. I think there's absolutely going to be a skills-based approach rather than a roles-based approach as well. So they're just a couple of examples. Yeah. So, Kerry, from your point of view, do you, do you agree with Glynis that there will be a greater openness, a greater ability to engage, to, to bring in some of the, the, you know, the, the thinking, the experience, the, the, the access to global knowledge perhaps that's not available you know, immediately inside the public service? Yeah, I mean, I, th I certainly think there's the opportunity. It's up to leaders then to take that opportunity and run with it. So I think there is a, there's the ability now to you know, rethink um, to be able to reset and reform, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so there's lots of lessons uh, to be learnt. And I think you're right, David, you know, that, that, that sustaining that is going to be the really tricky part of it. But in the end, that's going to be up to leaders and, and to be able to um, drive that down through organisations. You know, so many times, I'm sure, Glenys, you found the same thing, that it, you can't just do it from the top. You actually have to have that, that values piece and an understanding right throughout the organisation. Otherwise, you find that, that um, what you think is happening at the top of the organisation is not happening sort of lower down. So I think that's a lot around your communication strategies, It's um, which are, you know, really fundamental, um, and giving people context, you know, of what they're there to achieve and really focusing sort of on the outcomes. Um, so I think, you know, coming off the back of, and it's hard to say whether you're coming off the back of the pandemic, right, you know, so it's ongoing. Um, and I think that's the other thing. People need to be... Uh, aware, you know, there's likely to be other strains, right, and there's likely to be, you know, that resilience factor that's needed forevermore. So, Glennis's point about continuing to plan for, for change and, and for upheaval, that uncertainty is going to be really important, I think, part of the, particularly for leaders, sort of part of their capabilities that they're going to need, you know, their skill set. Um, so, I think, though, one of the things that has happened during this pandemic, everyone has been, had to focus obviously on getting stuff through and doing the things that have to be done, that's probably to the detriment of reform across the public sector and the, and we we know, certainly Glenn and I, from different pieces of work that we've been doing, that leaders across the public sector have said, you know, we're two, three years behind in terms of where we wanted to be, in terms of 
reforming systems in terms of building capability. Um, so I think now's the time, you know, and, and there will be at the Commonwealth level, you know, we'll have a caretaker period where people will need time to get some rest, but they will also need time to sort of rethink about what those reform agendas are and how you're going to actually um, put new things on the table um, and and do that reform in your own organisations to have, you know, greater performance. So, Glynis, it was the first point that you raised, and Kerry's uh, gone to it again, this notion of planning for uncertainty. How do you do that when lives and when you're working in the federal public service, particularly at senior levels, it is just so busy. There is so much to do. How do you carve out the time and the mindset and the space to be able to help your organisation to to manage and be better prepared for that uncertainty that you talk about? It's a great question and I think Kerry and I have been exposed to some commentary around what some big multinationals are doing and they've got dedicated teams that report to the chief executive that do have scenario planning units. Mm. And But I don't think the public service holds all the answers and I think that's what the pandemic's shown. So if we're open to working with industry and stakeholders uh, in problem solving and taking them on the journey, then I think we're halfway there where I think in the past we've been very good at developing policy papers and cabinet submissions and the like. I think we've actually got to get out there and go through some of those scenarios. And and we have had, when I was in health, we did have WHO scenarios around pandemics, influenza outbreaks and the like, but it's very much focused on um, health and what health was going to do, whereas I think now we've got to look at mm. across government, across industry, and say, what if? And and Kerry mentioned supply chains and the like, so supply chains were being managed just in time, now supply chains are being managed just in case. Mm. And so I think the private sector is starting to do that. And it, it's interesting, I think, in the public sector, if we managed in the past for contingency... It was always seen as, as fat, bloated, but I think now we do have to plan for that contingency and surge capacity and needing new skills in, in very different ways. So I think we should be doing more scenario planning and, and particularly with, with governments and, and with, with stakeholders. That's, that's hard to do because, as you say, it takes takes you off some of the transactional day-to-day -day things you're doing and focusing uh, absolutely on the future. But problem-solving and critical thinking, and Kerry mentioned some of the capabilities that have, have started to diminish in the public sector over time, not just due, through the pandemic, is that critical thinking, policy analysis, problem-solving with others, even defining what the problem is, um, is, is part of the challenge. So I think there's people that want to make things happen and I think we've got to just uh, use that momentum, if we can, to change, change the way that business is done in, in government. And I think there's, you know, there's an opportunity there and I was um, involved in a discussion the other day with a um, large department that was looking at um, how they... with the recognition that there's so much small business in this country, you know, 90-plus percent, you know, of our businesses um, are, are small businesses. Um, and how do you, how do you better um, 
I guess, corral the sort of the the ability of small businesses in terms of um, crisis, for example, and and that you have that ongoing relationship uh, with them to be able to, you know, use them in a crisis, but also, um, you know, in terms of uh, supply chain work, you know, knowing what they can provide and... and um, and I think you know that's a, that's a hard one when you're dealing with lots of you know sole traders, for example, um, and you know micro businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really encouraged that that those discussions are now starting to happen. You know, so I think it does give us that opportunity to forge different stakeholder relationships. And because we're actually now um, been doing a lot of work remotely, you know, there's some other mechanisms that we can use to do that. Um, but, you know, the communication's the key. Yeah. The, other, the other big thing that's brought to the fore is how you manage risk and what your risk appetite is. Mm-hmm. And I think... Many of us have been in organisations, I hope Kerry agrees, where you've gone through a tick and flick process in terms of some ISO template um, to manage risk. And yet now it's real. And so I think risk management, risk appetite and what we do about it, what are our risk mitigation strategies are real for people now at all levels. And so I think that's the other, other part of how to do and plan for uncertainty. And certainly um, one of the key um, mitigation uh, tactics, practices, processes that you can uh, deploy to manage risk is effective communication, and Kerry just mentioned it and you mentioned it in an earlier answer. Do you believe that the, the pandemic has heightened the need for more effective communication? Do you think they, do you have to communicate more now than you used to before? Previously, you did mention about your people and your productivity and dispersed workforces, which would tend to suggest that you do think that, but is it, do you have to do more now than you, than you used to have to do? Well, from my point of view, I think you probably do. I think one of the big challenges to create a positive culture in an organisation is to instil that sense of belonging for every staff member. And how do you do that? The best way is to communicate and engage with them so they don't feel so isolated. And I think now that remote working is here to stay and it doesn't matter where from, I think most people talk about from home, but we're probably talking about from around the world, around Australia, how do you keep them engaged? And I think um, digital technology and the way we do business is a great way uh, to do that uh, as well. But I think for leaders, um, understanding what makes people tick and how best to engage, you really do need to focus on on the person. And from an organisational sense is what's the impact of remote working and engaging individual on teams and team productivity? And in the past, we used to have arguments about who was going part-time, who was full-time, who was going to cover this, particularly when there were crises happening. And I think now there needs to be much more discipline and a deliberative process around how teams engage and teams work. And the best ideas come out of um, engaging around the table, um, tossing around ideas and having brainstorming sessions. And you can still do that with the with um, technology, but we, we shouldn't lose sight of the team team productivity as well. And I mean, Kerry, for you, the communications? Yeah, so I, so I would argue that 
it should have always been there. You know, it should have always been done well and, you know, and you can never communicate enough. And, and I, I use that context word. I think that's really important as well. So, you know, if you've got people sort of working in a vacuum that they don't know, you know, what it is that they're, they're trying to produce, but you give them, you know... You, you open up a bit more, you give them the context of why it's important and what they're doing and, and why it's important that you also talk to, you know, that department over there and those people over there that you'll get a better product. You know, I, I think it's... I think the the pandemic has just sort of has heightened that, but it should have always been sort of up front and, and centre. Um, I do agree, you know, the remote side of it, um, again, you know, I've just uh, been... Um, around a number of the uh, cities where I've been talking to stakeholders with a particular issue that I've been dealing with and they were just so pleased to be able to have face-to-face -face meetings mm -hmm. and so I got, you know, record turnouts of, pe turnouts of people, <laughs> so that was fantastic. But they, they had also commented that they hadn't... Um, they'd never had that sort of interaction uh, with the with the public sector before, and it shouldn't have been up to me to be having you know that for the sort of first time. So that was um, didn't matter whether it was a pandemic or not. You know the fact that they were really eager to have it was was a build up from the pandemic, but they'd never felt that they'd had um, interaction in the way that they should have with the public sector. So I think there is a golden opportunity to use a different media in different ways now, you know, so, you know, whether it's, um, I'm, I'm always of the view that you, you can't forge a deep relationship through remotely, that, you know, you need to do a lot more of that sort of face-to-face, -face, but then once you've actually developed that, then it's a lot easier just to pick up the phone or have a Teams meeting or, or whatever. So I think I'd be, I would be worried that we don't, um, that we sacrifice all face-to-face -face stakeholder mm -hmm. engagement um, and, and there is a risk of that, I think, where, where governments might go, OK, you've done without your, um, your travel budgets, you don't need that. Mm. Um, whereas I think that those, you know, all forms of communication um, are going to be important again. But I do think it gives us a number of other mm. um, avenues in which, you know, you know, it's opened up opportunities for better communication. I think leaders, I was just going to say, I think leaders probably have been more visible now, I think. Yeah. And Kerry is absolutely right. Communications in large departments, there's always been a trickle-down, misinformation, uh, interpretation of what leaders have said, but now I think there's an opportunity for leaders to, to talk direct to yeah. all employees, which is... Regularly. Regularly. And I, and I think Kerry's right, yeah. Always it was, oh, you're not telling us this, you're not telling us that. There was a need for, there was a thirst mm. for communication almost on a daily basis, and I'm sure it would have been for some during the pandemic. I mean, I think we had a number, because of Federation, a number of mixed messages going out there to, to the citizens and the like, and the, who's the authoritative source of information? And that's where I think leaders can be much more visible. But I agree. I mean, I like working around the table and seeing people face-to-face. -face. And I have heard some teams that have said that they've had more interaction with their <laughs> supervisors and managers um, than they'd ever had before. And I think that was being drilled into everyone, well, you know, you have to keep people informed. And that, you know, so that's a good thing. But that's also... It's also become quite tiring for people, you know. I think we do have to recognise that people are really, you know, are quite tired over the past, you know, couple of years. And, um, uh, yeah, we just have to factor those mental health issues into mm. sort of, you know, into our work as um, leaders as well. So, Glynis, what's your view when you hear that story, the, the anecdote that Kerry just told us about 
the public um, response, the craving for engagement with government and government went and did it and not only were they pleased through the pandemic that they needed that information but it was a feeling that they'd never had before or that they'd never felt like they'd been spoken to before. Is that... Is it, a, is it a cultural thing? Is it a mindset thing? Does the public service think that they're doing it and they're actually not doing it? What's the problem and how can we solve it as we strive to improve that or achieve high performance in the public sector? In terms of communication yeah. with citizens? Well, yeah, yeah with citizens, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I think it is a big issue for the public service generally and sometimes that comes from the authorising environment. So mm. sometimes... Ministers and government will see it's their responsibility to um, convey messages to to the public, and I just want you to implement and and make sure nothing goes wrong, public servants, and I'll talk to the constituents. Whereas I think now I think government obviously has been using chief health officers and medical people, army people. Uh, we've heard from um, emergency department specialists that are getting out there uh, talking to the public. So I think now the authorising environment and the acceptance of public servants um, and public servants with trust um, talking more directly to constituents and citizens is a good th I think it's a good thing. Um, not to raise the profile of public servants, but to make sure that there's an authoritative source of information and, and information you can trust. And, and we've all seen the misinformation coming around um, from very high levels too of, of within our elected politicians about vaccines and the like. So where do people go to get information? And I think public servants um, should be trusted to provide that impartial uh, authoritative source of, of information that people are craving for. Mm. Kerry, that's a, an, an interesting point that Glynis raises, isn't it, around mm. in the age of misinformation and disinformation, the public sector, the public service really does have to be the, the source of truth, has to be able to um, represent the, the facts, the evidence. How can they better do that? How can they achieve that? How can, how can the public sector play a better role in being able to communicate that, um, that credibility? So I, I think that there's... Um, so I think it can be done on a micro level and sort of a macro level. So I think at the micro level it is about... Um, Understanding, getting back to sort of knowing where your risk appetite is and actually working that out with the, your elected officials. So working that out with ministers about where your parameters yep. are. It's really important um, so that then you can actually instil that in your staff as well. Because I think there is, you know, where, where I see where there are um, organisations that are very risk averse, um, they're increasingly then, you know, turning to turning to people like us to go, you know, oh, okay, well, we need a review done and we want something done out there because they're a little bit worried about, you know, how far to go and so we can go in there and, you know, we can have a very um, upfront discussion and then it's not going to come back on, on them. So, so I think it can be done, you know, um, at that micro level through, you know, more discussions and I'd have to say, I think a lot more listening, you know, with stakeholders. You know, I don't think there's nearly enough of that that happens. There's a lot of, there is a lot of preaching that can be done about what can't be done as distinct from just listening to hear what the issues are um, from a whole variety of stakeholders. I think at the um, at the broader level, 
I mean, um, I think it does depend a bit on the gov government's appetite to allow the experts to sort of speak as well. And then I think it's about the line that is there. So again, I think it comes back to those discussions with government um, around around the role that the public servant is playing in terms of providing information and the factual piece versus the politics and, mm -hmm. and being clear about not stepping over that line. Um, so I think those conversations are really important and, and in terms of you know, we're coming up to that election, as we've spoken about. Um, being able to do that almost on day one with new ministers is important for leaders to be able to have those discussions about the roles that public servants are playing, the role, their expectations of um, in, in terms of that communication. Has COVID changed the expectations, do you believe, between ministerial officers and the, the senior levels of the public service? Uh, so I think it... I th think in line with actually what Glenys has said, I think it's opened up those opportunities some more. So I think there is um, a bit more willingness from ministers to to see where there's expertise that can be laid on. And in the end, I think that's really helpful for ministers, you know. So ministers don't have to rely on everything in their heads about every bit of information and then they can turn to the experts to be able to, you know, provide that, that context and that information. Um, so I think I think there is, that that's open an opportunity. I think though there's also um, a risk, and there's always that risk, because if a um, if a minister doesn't like what the expert has said, then that might crawl it for you know the next <laughs> the next time. So, um, but I think there are conversations that have to ha happen between. And your view, Glennis, do you think there's been a shift? I think I think there has, and I think it's not just the pandemic. It's probably the floods and bushfires yeah. that started at the start of 2020. And what were people craving is someone out there from government. They didn't they didn't care whether it was an elected politician or someone from the public service. Look at us. Look what's happening on the ground. And we should be doing that anyway in terms of our normal business, whether it's aged care, health, you know, how someone goes through the cancer journey and the like is. We need to understand what clients and customers and citizens are going through so we can better tailor our advice and certainly our services to meet their needs. And I think, so I think it's been a whole number of things that it has exposed, I think, a need for public servants to engage. And Kerry spoke about micro level. I think engaging and involving industry and citizens in co-design, which sounds like a buzzword, but you know, problem solving again, is should be a normal part of um, the way we operate, and that will instil trust. I think in the future, rather than um, particularly here in Canberra at the federal level, we're seen as um, sitting in isolation in terms of what's actually happening on the ground. Mm. Interesting. An earlier answer that you gave was really around that problem solving and saying that it was necessary even inside the bigger departments for everyone to work together. You know, one defence, <laughs> one, one health, um, one APS. Uh, but even to take that further to solve the problems by bringing everybody else um, together. Yeah. How, how, how does that become different in this post-pandemic world? If there has been that flick where there has been that movement towards that collaboration and cooperation, but again, how do we make that continue rather than just, oh, we'll just go back to the way that we've always done it before and we'll just get back into our stove, we'll just get back into our lanes and we'll stay in our lanes because that's where yeah. traditionally we've always 
exist. And I think, I think there's a big risk of doing that. I think mm. there's raised expectations from the people that we serve uh, now in terms of not only just using digital in the way we do business, but quality of services, the quality of advice, getting involved in problem solving. So the pressures are coming from outside. They're coming from our own staff in terms of how we do business. So changing some of the business models uh, within organisations is going to be pretty uh, critical. I don't, think, I don't think there is going back. The costs of government through digitisation and the like are coming down, but there's raised expectations, um, heightened awareness of what governments can, can do um, that is going to increase pressure on services and the quality of services in the future. So I think we absolutely have to engage others in that in that problem solving. And I know I'm, I'm probably sounding cliched by now, but I certainly learnt the lesson through um, the health industry coordination group in terms of procuring PPE um, in March 2020, March, April, May. Mm. And it was a completely new business model, so much so that we had to get ACCC approval for industry to work together. Mm competitors to work together. Mm. So they're changing their business models and we have to be in sync mm. uh, as well. So Kerry, to deliver on that promise, to deliver on that future, goes to your point around capability and being able to do it. It's not as if you can just, you know, one day turn up at work and go, all of a sudden I've got all of these new great skills. So it's a, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different mindset. How do, how do high-performing organisations go about building that? within their organisations? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, again, I know it sounds a bit cliched, but, you know, the key to high performance in organisations is your people, right? You know, so you've got to have... You've got to have the right people, right skills, right place, right time, and um, that's easy to say and harder to do. I think there is, um, you know, I hear terminology around the public service at the moment about, you know, the Hunger Games, you know, type um, approach to to recruit to um, finding staff as yeah. people are are really, you know, looking for those uh, those key key staff members, and you know, upping the ante in terms of sort of, um, in some cases, it will be, you know, over-promoting people because you need them there and, and so there's this bidding war that's happening. And so I think that's a, that's a bit of a, a risk as we know that, you know, the supply um, is... Um, uh, is not meeting the, you know, the demand. So, um, so I think that it, it, it is... It, Organisations more than ever are going to need to go back to sort of what are the, what are the capabilities that they need, you know, and you know I'd love to be able to point to an organisation that does this well across the public sector. I think we all always have grappled with it, grappled with um, uh, looking at, at what our future needs were in organisations, and then doing the the development of people in the way that we need to. So, I think. Um, I just think it's going to be a crucial aspect. You know, there's I know there's a lot of work that um, has been going through the um, Public Service Commission in terms of the um, academies and in terms of, of looking at the structures. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, pay structures. But the, the hierarchy. Hi yeah, 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 levels. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, that's... 
I don't know where that's heading, but I think that that's going to be really crucial. So I think having a looking at this in a sort of different way, um, and and really looking at what the needs are of organisations going forward, and that collaboration, communication. I think that that resilience piece is probably something we're going to see um, as a key sort of criteria more than more than ever before, and and that ability to be you know strategically sort of looking ahead. So so I think there's, um, you know, the key is finding the right people, getting the right people. Um, there's going to be that shortage, I think, for, for some time to come. So I think that's going to mean that, that the graduate pool is going to be really, really critical and training up your graduate pool. I think this is the worst time possible to reduce that. And sometimes there's a tendency mm. when budgets are tight to do that. I think that would be a, a real mistake. Um, and then, uh, and then at the other end, I think it's really looking at that leadership capability in the organisations. You know, so how do you get those leaders, and how do you train those leaders that can step up in this continuous sort of process of of change and uncertainty? And Glennis, your advice in terms of you know, it's the dreaded word, isn't it? Skills. Yeah. Every organisation, public sector, private sector, every time you you know open up the financial review, there's another story about. Yeah. We don't have enough um, yeah. people, and how do we solve the skills? Shortage and that's why that there's been a lot of outsourcing too. So there's been a, a whammy of a cap on staff on public servants, but also an increased demand in terms of skills and capability. I think Kerry's right. We do have to invest in capability, and what we've done in the past is invested in thinking about a particular role and invested um, skills and capability around a particular role, whereas I think now it's more that critical thinking, um, showing the initiative, being innovative. I mean, it, how, how do you judge that? Entrepreneurship is probably not a skill we would have been looking for many years ago in the public service, but I think entrepreneurship, taking the initiative, problem solving, and obviously the normal leadership skills because that's how you influence... Uh, the and mobilise others uh, to perform well uh, too. I, I, I think there's a great opportunity to break down the hierarchy. Mm. Um, I, I think being leaders in organisations, information is sanitised by the time you get it as a leader. You do want to engage, like ministers want to engage with people who know about the subject matter. So I think we'll see more of a mix of specialist expertise and knowledge as well as the generalists, whereas I think we were probably leaning towards quite a few years ago having many more generalists in the public sector, whereas I think there's going to be a real mix mix now. But it's not something that you can turn around overnight, is it? No, but you can work with research institutions, 40 universities we've got. What are we doing in terms of secondments and partnerships with universities? We've got a great source of expertise uh, there as well. But I think you're right. I mean, it's not there's not a short-term fix to the, hmm. the capability uplift that's needed. Um, I think it does take a, a lot of strategic planning and has to be sort of front and centre yeah. across the public sector and look at it as a whole of what's needed. And that collaborative piece, I'd add to sort of your, mm. your piece too, you know, that relationship building um, is just critical. And without that relationship building piece, you're not going to get that collaboration and, and sustain the, the aspects you were talking about earlier, David, about you know how do you how do you maintain that sort of task force feel in what, in terms of what you what you're doing to the everyday in the public sector. 
Mm. Now, I, I do want to go back to probably the, if it's not the most important thing, it's pretty close to it, and that's people. Um, you both expressed uh, in earlier answers just the importance of getting the people right. Uh, but managing people in these um, continuing challenges, because just before we turned the lights and cameras on here today, we were all discussing COVID cases that we all knew about, you know, that were, that, that were back. What's your advice, again, in these future high-performing organisations, these dispersed, distributed workforces around the place? What do people need to do to get that bit right, to make sure that they can keep people connected, they can keep them motivated, they can keep them productive, and they can keep them safe? Well, put people front and centre, you know. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, keep, I, I think we, you know, we have learned a lot through the pandemic about um, issues around mental health, about, um, uh, you know, that people can't be on all the time, you know, that they... Uh, and, and I think that that humanity that's been brought through sort of remote um, working has actually been really helpful in that, um, you know, the fact that you see people's kids and you see, you know, the cat climbing on the table and you know, you know, in some in some ways it's more intrusive and you've got to be a little careful of that because people are protective of, you know, their private life for, for good reason. But it has brought that sort of sense of, oh, actually they're real people and they've got other things going on in their life. And I think that's a really uh, good thing and some, an opportunity, you know, for leaders to sort of build on that. Um, but I do think, um, you know, it's been, you know, it's, it's a tough number of years for people, you know, and I, I do a lot of um, mentoring and coaching with people and they're really tired because they're actually, you know, leaders that are trying to, you know, sustain that uh, high performance of, of individuals. So I think we have to, you know, learn about being, you know, um, a bit kind to each other and understanding, you know, that it has been a tough time and, um, uh, and seeing the signs from people that are actually not sort of coping and using the services sort of around us, which I know all sounds, you know, a bit soft, and um, but, uh, but you know, if you want high performance, then you actually have to take care of your people. Yeah, and I think there's a, a bit of self-responsibility too here. Yeah, sure. Like WHS, I mean, everyone should be looking after their own physical and mental health and wellbeing. And I think there's been a misalignment of expectations in the past around performance. And we haven't focused on, well, OK, what's going to make you be the best you possibly can? And I think the alignment now, and I think there's more onus on leaders and supervisors to be very clear about those expectations and, and agree what can and can't be done with individuals and teams. So I think it, it's, not, it's not being soft or sacrificing productivity because we all want high performance, we all want productivity, and how are we going to do that together? But I think that focus on physical as well as mental well-being is particularly important. And I, I look at people who do suffer from anxiety and the like, and people are going through stressful situations. So stress sometimes is a normal part of life, and it's how we manage it. And are we as managers giving the strategies and tools for people to work through those crises as well? And I think that's where I think leaders have got to be very conscious of of what productivity means and what what duty of care we have to make that happen. And I think that that um, word expectation is a really really important piece. I know a few times in different organisations that um, uh, that 
a cohort of people who have been, you know, aspiring to next levels have thought that, you know, the organisation wanted one thing from them and then you sit down and you work through and say, actually, no, this is what we need. You know, it goes back to the skills piece you were asking about. Here is the expectation we have of people at the EL2 level. This is what we expect you to do. And... Any time I've done that, people have been surprised about what they thought what they thought that I, I wanted from them and what my expectation of them was. So I think aligning that is really important um, and that goes through in terms of um, how they're working, um, goes through in terms of that relationship building, goes through to, you know, their expectations of not being, you know, at their desk or virtual mm. desk 24-7. Or even um, behavioural expectations. What yeah. are the behaviours you expect? What are the values? Mm. What's the culture you want to instil? And I think every employee needs to understand that. Mm. Yeah. Okay, a final question then. Um, we've been talking about high-performance organisations dealing with these dramatic, substantial changes that have taken place and are continuing. But if I was to offer you the optimism scale, 1 to 10, in terms of where we sit at the moment, where would you land in terms of this bright future that you've described and how ready the APS and organisations inside the APS are ready to, to move to that, that nirvana, the, 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 the enlightened future that you've described. I mean, if that's sort of looking across it as, as an amorphous sort of block here, and I think that it's, it's you know... It, and it's not easy. Like, it's it, not, all of this stuff, like, rolled easy, together, but, it's massively yeah, complex. So I think, you know, so I think there is, there's an opportunity there, there, and to be able to take all of the things that we've learned over the last couple of years. And so I'd be really positive about what that opportunity is there and sort of, you know, put it further at that, probably at that sort of seven-ish, though, you know, there's <laughs> that there are, we've got... We've, we've, we've learned. There you go. So we've learned a whole lot of things, and we've got the we've got that opportunity. We've got a springboard because of a whole lot of things that we've learned and lessons learned. Um, whether people will actually take that and run with it, I think, is a different yeah, story. I, I think there's the mindsets there. Absolutely, you'd probably put it on the very positive side. But are all the tools and the processes and what I said about the fundamentals of managing organisations there? And that's what's going to constrain the pace of change within organisations. So they may not have all the systems in place. They may not have all their performance agreements in place. They may not have redesigned their business models. So that's where I think I've come back to a seven in terms of <laughs> implementing the mindset that I think is there from the leaders. Yeah. I think that capability issue is the big one, though, yeah. that, you know, yeah. that if that isn't sort of addressed and um, and and there's a reliance on sort of a non-existent sort of work <laughs> um, workers there, then, you know, then I think that's a problem. So that, that's probably the thing that I would worry about most for the sector. All right. We could go on. I, I have quite a few more questions that I could ask um, to Kerry Hartland and to Glenis Beecham, but I will... Stop it there. Thank you so much for coming along today to uh, listen to us. And thanks to Glennis and thanks to Kerry. I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion and we'll see you again sometime in the future. So there you have it. My conversation with Kerry Hartland and Glennis Beecham and a big thanks to Proximity and the team at Content Group for putting that webinar, which was now a podcast, together. A big thanks, as always, to our friends at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support 
for Work With Purpose. It really does help us to raise the profile and improve the awareness and understanding of the important work of the people of the Australian Public Service. A big thanks to the team at Content Group for putting it all together. And they have been busy. They have also now launched another podcast to go along with GovComs and Work With Purpose. There is now the Gradcast, the third of the GovComs podcast network podcasts. And the Gradcast is, as it sounds, it is by Australian public service graduates for APS public service graduates. So by APS grads for APS grads. It's a fantastic, innovative, new program which really helps to bring the perspective of grads to life and the topics uh, and information that they are interested in. So if you know anyone who's a grad, please encourage them to their their uh, favourite podcast app uh, where they can download the episode. And please, if you do see the social media promotion, pass it on. Thanks again to each and every one of you. Our loyal audience will be back at the same time in two weeks with another episode of Work With Purpose. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. Thank you.